Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we will be talking about organizational design and high-performing organizations. I am delighted to welcome Dean Mayer, author of eight books on organizational design, including structure, teamwork, resource, governance processes, and culture. So, Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susie. I'm so excited to be part of your interesting and very relevant series of podcasts. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. It's great to have you. Dean, you like to challenge conventional thinking, and your vision is a very different organizational operational model, which is where the hierarchy actually houses um, a network of empowered internal entrepreneurs. And your most recent book, How Organizations Should Work, is built, in fact, on your 35 years of experience of accompanying and coaching executives on organizational transformations. So in your book, you talk about vision, obviously, but you also talk about mechanics and the implementation. So the principles of engineering uh, great organizations, if you like, but I would like to start with vision. So, you know, we hear a lot about organizational design, particularly since the pandemic and hybrid models and, you know, and people liken it to an art. So as ever, there are lots of schools of thought and definitions, but can we start there? What is your definition, Dean, of organizational design? Thank you, Susie. What I'm talking about is the ecosystem in which we work. Mm. You see, organizations send signals that guide people day by day. I'll give you an example. Let's say I tell you, uh, you know, these are tough economic times. We've got to run lean and mean. We've got to be frugal. We've got to conserve costs, conserve headcount. But in this fictitious company, your status, your political clout, your ability to get things done, in fact, your title and your paycheck all depend on how big an empire you got, you know, yep. how big your budget is. And <laughs> so what would a rational person do? You'll wave your arms about controlling costs and you build empires, mm. right? You're going to team mm. with others. Oh, no, I need the headcount myself. Yep. It's an insidious and inappropriate signal built into the environment that would cause great talent mm. to do absolutely the wrong things. Mm. So for these last 35 years, I've been on a hunt for where these signals are coming from. Okay. Signals that guide all of us mm. as we work every day. And what I've found over the years is five organizational systems. Okay. Three big ones, two little ones. The three big ones that determine the overall shape and character and feel and performance level of the organization are structure, which includes both the organization chart and teamwork processes. Can't mm -hmm. separate those. Mm -hmm. Resource governance processes that I call the internal economy. Okay. Culture, the way we work around here. Mm -hmm. And then the two minor ones are for institutionalizing and fine-tuning a new organizational paradigm. That includes best practices, methods, cross-boundary processes. In IT, you'll hear things like ITIL and DevOps and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And finally, the fifth of the five, metrics and consequences. Metrics include not only performance management, but the dashboards people have that they use day by day to guide their performance, perhaps even more powerful than annual performance feedback. So when I say organization design, I mean all five systems, not just structure. And I guess what I exclude, what I don't do for a living, I know you do, is mm -hmm. the human systems, the people that live inside that ecosystem. So mm -hmm. I'm laser focused on the design of the ecosystem. And I really believe that the most important job of a leader is to design an organizational ecosystem in which everyone can prosper with or without her, hmm. Which, the legacy of an organization yeah. designed to perform. 
Mm. Which, of course, brings us back to the human systems for me. But and uh, we were chatting before the show and, and, you know, working them together is really quite an art. But let's go back to organizational design. This is part of why I love talking to you, (laughs) because we bring different things to the table. I'm the mechanic. I'm the mechanic for the ecosystem. Yes, Mm. there's a lot to do with people learning to live inside a a more empowered and entrepreneurial world Mm. Uh, has to go hand in Mm. hand with the engineering of the ecosystem. So. Collaboration is the key, Susie. Yeah, and you're right. For that, you need structure. And we'll come to that a little bit uh, later when we talk about holacracy. And I would like your opinion on that. But before we go there, mm. what you know, there, you're well known in organizational design circles. You talk a lot about this subject. Where do you feel, Dean, that current thinking on organizational design may be wrong today? Ah, yes, I'm very concerned about this. It's a big question, but <laughs> no, a very specific concern. Mm. Back in the 1960s, we were in the post-World War II era of steady growth, and it was reasonable that strategies could be long-term. The world was relatively stable back then. In 1962, Alfred Chandler uh, said quite famously, structure follows strategy. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter, Jay Galbraith published the STAR model, which embeds Mm -hmm. structure and strategy in the design of the organization. Well, nowadays... Is strategy long-term? Is it stable? No way. Uh, You know the term VUCA? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. The world is moving way too fast, and organizations have to learn to be much more agile, much more Mm. dynamic, much more responsive to an ever-changing world. Strategies nowadays are multifaceted and changing all the time. If you design an organization tailored to today's strategies. Mm. Not only will it fail at tomorrow's strategies, it will fail to discover tomorrow's strategies. We've got to design organizations as much more dynamic systems that can quickly recombine their talents Mm. to address a multiplicity of ever-changing strategies. And that is at the core of my difference from traditional organization design thinking. It's more of a systems approach. Yeah. So, to come back to your words of ecosystem and allowing mm. it to navigate whatever life and the market throws at it, essentially, yeah. which which brings me back to structure and the idea of holacracy and teal approaches. We hear a lot about both of them. And I think people often assume, or I've heard quite a lot that, oh, let's do holacracy, then I don't need a boss and I can do what I want. And often those which is, you know, very black and white, and it's a lot more in depth than that. But often people feel that it needs, it will be less structured. Now, I'm a big believer in the fact that, you know, you have to frame things even better if you want more freedom in the middle of that frame. But I'd be really interested in your opinion, Dean, on what you think of holacracy and the teal approaches as a way to empower people and counter these rigidities that we were talking about in the in the beginning of command and control, building territories, et cetera, et cetera. What's your view on that? Well, first, I, and we'll discuss this more if you'd like, yep. I absolutely believe in empowerment. Yep. Nothing I say should ever be construed to say that the uh, role of a boss is to disempower you or tell mm. you how to do your job and so on. Furthermore, I believe in tapping people's entrepreneurial spirit and potential yep. and, uh, creativity and all. But I don't think taking your hands off the wheel and just hoping for the best is great leadership. <laughs> yeah. Hierarchy has a purpose. Actually, it it has a few purposes. Hmm. The job of the hierarchy is to provide all of the needed competencies, all of the needed capabilities in an organization so that we can have the right talent when we need it to flexibly recombine based on whatever the strategies of the day are. 
it's also a great way to do performance management. And mm-hmm. oh, the holacracy people really struggle with that concept of performance management. They know it's necessary, but it's extremely difficult in that world. And there's also need for coordination, coordination across the organization of policies and strategies and such. So hierarchy has a number of important purposes. It's just a bad way to get actual work done. Mm. It would be stifling to have to run up and down the chain every time you need help from another group. or Which is still happening in a lot of organizations. Yeah, (laughs) a lot of traditional organizations. There's got to be a better way. So as the saying goes, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And uh, let's not leave to chance the notion Mm. of organizations magically happening to have all the right talents they need to address any strategy, magically managing their own performance, magically coordinating Mm. strategies and policies. No, let's use hierarchy for what it's good at but not for command and control Mm. and not for coordinating day-to-day work. Mm. Which brings me to the alternative, because clearly you propose an alternative um, in your book, uh, How Organizations Should Work, which I found very relevant as I followed this journey through the book and put myself, because what I really liked about the book is the fact that it's storytelling. So I, I followed the main characters through their different questionings, through their different challenges, through their different discussions and collaborations with people who've experienced different things around how your alternative model can work. So could you walk our listeners through the alternative you propose? Well, thank you for those compliments. This book <laughs> is welcome. different in style. My, mm. my past uh, seven books were much more traditional mm. expository mm. style, but mm. this is my capstone. It's all I got. Yeah. So I, 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 I really liked it. I like the storytelling part thank and I like you. the way you can follow the main characters and clearly identify with them wherever you sit in the organization. So that's that's nice. Thank you. As you said up top, there are really three topics in the book. One is a vision of a very different kind of organizational mm. paradigm. The other is the engineering science of that ecosystem, firm principles and guidelines for designing an ecosystem. Mm. <laughs> I'm not designing people or engineering people by any means. <laughs> it's the world in which we work. Mm. And the third piece is um, change management, the implementation processes in which where I believe in participative and open and principle-based processes. Mm. But what makes the whole thing really different is where it starts, the vision. So imagine with me, imagine that your job is designed not around roles in processes or responsibilities for tasks or vague language about your competencies, but rather your job is designed as a business, a Mm. business within a business. You see your peers throughout the enterprise as customers and as suppliers. You're not just accountable for getting today's work out the door. You're accountable for running a business, for supporting past sales. I say sales. I'm not talking about money changing hands. I'm Mm. not talking about chargebacks. But figuratively speaking, those are your customers alongside you and your suppliers. So you, you support past sales. You deliver current sales. You obsolete your own products with innovation and creativity. And you drive your own business strategies in the context of enterprise strategies. You are empowered. Nobody tells you how to do your job, but you're accountable. Mm. Um, Accountable for delivering results and beyond that, for running a business. How does work get done? Well, let's say we identify a new strategy as an organization. There should be one and only one group in this company that's in the business of delivering exactly that. Because Mm -hmm. we carefully design the heart hierarchy so that we don't have overlapping domains. We certainly have enough competition outside. We don't need to be competing with one another. So we know who's in the business of delivering that. 
Now, just like when you build a house, your general contractor hires an electrician and a plumber and a roofer, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The first job of that identified person, that prime contractor, I'll call them, is to line up the subcontractors. And of course, Mm -hmm. those subcontractors can arrange for their subcontractors. And you're not just saying, hey, come join my team as a warm body. You're saying, I want to buy this from you. It's not, hey, electrician, just join the construction team. No, I want you to install this electrical plan. Hmm. And plumber, I want you to install this plan. Hmm. So you're contracting with, and I'm not talking, you know, legal contracts and bureaucracy yes. and all that, yeah. but figuratively speaking again, you're contracting for deliverables. Hmm. And so your subcontractor can manage that sub project, hmm. including managing any subs to subs. So project management gets a lot easier. But in this way, teamwork can ripple across an entire large organization laterally, not up and down the hierarchy, Mm. as subcontract with one another to get their jobs done. That's what I mean by the market organization. And that's implemented not just through structure, which includes both the design of the jobs and that teamwork process that puts them all back Mm. together, but um, resource governance processes like budgeting and demand management or priority setting should be based on market model, market economics, Mm. culture, and talk about all the behaviors in an entrepreneurial organization. And metrics, metrics should be defined as measures of how well you're running your business, not just a list of KPIs or projects that you got done. Mm. That's what I mean by the market organization. And I love that term, the market organization. Um, And just being aware of what's moving, what's shifting in your external market, but also if I take figuratively what's shifting in your internal market in terms of different talents that you have around you, the ecosystem that you've built, And also this culture of collaboration as opposed to competition, as you said, which is very important for people to be able to work together within a system that that they've built where it's clear, the frame is clear, the structure is clear on roles and responsibilities, processes, procedures, and those type of thing. It brings me to decision-making. So you mentioned empowerment, and I know it's a a golden rule in your new model, Mm -hmm. and you know, it's everyone's bugbear today, decision-making and is it centralized or decentralized? Who makes decisions? Whose role is it? Who should be creating the conditions for decisions to be made? And, you know, the idea of consensus decision-making that you discuss in your book, could you tell us more about the golden rule of empowerment and the role of consensus? Because mm-hmm. consensus can also be disempowering, can't it, as a decision-making approach? It can be very Mm. easily, yes. So first, let me define what I mean by empowerment. And this is so, as you said, this is so important that I call it the golden rule of organizational design. It affects all five systems, not not just structure. And it's simply this. Empowerment to me means that authorities and accountabilities match. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say this in black and white terms. I know the world is made of shades of gray, but just to illustrate the point in black and white terms, if ever you separate authority from accountability, On one hand, the person with authority becomes an unconstrained tyrant, not accountable for the implications of their decisions. And on the other hand, the person with accountability is a not concomitant authority, becomes a helpless victim who can't get the job done, and a scapegoat when the guy with authority who made bad decisions goes wrong. It can't work. It can't work at any level in any way. Separation of authorities and accountabilities is just plain bad design. So I don't mean everybody's free to do whatever they want. They have customers that they have to serve. There are rules of the road here in terms of organizational policies and the way we work together. But it does mean that um, you have all the authorities you need and no more. Let's Mm -hmm. fix some game and no more to get to fulfill your accountabilities. So one implication of that 
is nobody tells you how to do your job. We manage people to results, Hmm. not tasks. So I'm really kind of allergic to these decision frameworks or racy models that try to meddle in tasks and what, what people do or how they go about it. I like to speak in terms of deliverables, the products and services you deliver to your internal customers. So one implication is nobody tells you how to produce them, although your customers Mm. have every right to tell you what they want to buy. Mm. So what you produce, yeah, your customers tell you that, just like any real-world business. Mm. But not the what, yes, the how, no. So you ask about consensus. When should consensus be used? Mm. Consensus should only be used and should always be used when a decision impacts multiple stakeholders. Example policies, plans, that sort of thing that cut across the organization. If you establish a policy that impinges on my work and I Mm. wasn't in the room, that's disempowering. So we bring all the stakeholders together and seek consensus only for decisions that impact us all, shared decisions. Yeah, which means that everybody has enough clarity to invite the right people to sit at the right table when those decisions are being made. Absolutely. That mm. comes from a well-designed ecosystem, especially mm. structure, to know who's in the businesses that are going to be affected by this decision. And let's get representatives from those groups in the room. Mm. Exactly right. mm. I'm also hearing autonomy as well as, I mean, I'm putting my words on it around accountability and empowerment, which go hand in hand, but also autonomy, the autonomy to act. And like you say, they're measured on deliverables and not necessarily on tasks. So you're, you have autonomy to do how you see fit what you're being asked to do. And the deliverable is the measure. You certainly have autonomy over Mm. the how. And there is some autonomy over what, I should add. What you actually produce in the way of products and services is driven by customer demand. Of course. Um, Whether your customers are internal or external or both. But there's also some of your time has to be dedicated to sustaining your business, to improving Mm. your processes, to building relationships with your customers, to writing proposals to your customers, to explain how long things will take and how much Mm. they're going to cost and so on, and to innovation to uh, growing your business and and evolving your product line. Those sustenance activities, in an economic model, we call that unbillable time. Well, you're a consultant, you know that. Yes, I know that. Unbillable time (laughs) is not unimportant. It's the Mm. time you spend keeping your business sustainable and viable in the future. Mm. You have absolute autonomy over that. No one should tell you what or how to do that stuff. Mm. And as far as your strategy, that was an interesting point you made a moment ago. You have a strategy for your business within a business because the rest of the company is your marketplace and you've got competition in the form of decentralization and outsourcing. How are you going to keep your business alive? Mm. So your strategy, we're not just talking about an enterprise strategy in its market. We're talking about your strategy as an entrepreneur in your internal market. And all those strategies, of course, that's your responsibility, but that has to be done in coordination. In coordination mm. with all your peers so that it all adds up to the enterprise strategy. Mm. So there are coordinating processes that bring us together without disempowering us. Mm. Which which brings me to my next point around um, volume and scaling. Okay. So, you know, my, so I come from having worked in a very large organization and I've now worked with some smaller organizations and medium-sized organizations. Does this approach work in all sizes of organization and, and what would be the different challenges? Well, first, let me admit that my experience is limited to what you would call small to medium sized organizations ranging from 10 to a thousand or 2000 people. Okay. So that uh, I've worked in companies, uh, nonprofits, government, in departments within companies like IT and HR mm. and public relations, as well as enterprises as a whole. 
So it seems to apply regardless of industry, regardless of function, like ITHR mm. facilities and so on. When you get over a thousand people, thousand person organization typically has a tier zero C mm. level leader and mm. then tier one and tier two and tier three. When it gets bigger than that, remember, we want to make these decisions about the ecosystem through consensus, and it's going to be really hard to engage. Mm. In a thousand-person organization, I might have a leadership team in the room for a workshop that counts 60, 70 people. So anything over that, what I would do is break it into chunks. For example, mm. in one company, I worked with IT and then went on to work with HR and went on to work with public relations. So I would break it into chunks that are more manageable from a change management and participation. Mm. But I really do believe the concepts apply to organizations of any size, because what we're talking about is human nature and the way humans interact with those signals or respond mm. to those signals. Mm. So I don't see that that would change just because you're part of a bigger enterprise. No, I think it's just adding complexity, isn't it? Adding complexity on the, on in terms the change of, management side yes. more than the engineering side. Yeah, on the human system side in terms of teaming. So, you know, how do you create consensus in an organization of 60,000, 70,000 people. Not saying you can't, it just might take more time and look and look a little bit different. Yeah, yeah there's going to be a representative yeah. process. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. So can we come to, I mean, we could talk for hours, but we have a set amount of time. So let's come to mechanics. And I want to come back to organizational design, which, you know, has been likened to an art. And you see it as an engineering science Mm. And I'm very intrigued for you to share with us why. We have those five systems that seem yeah. to explain most of the signals. Within each of the five, there is an engineering science. There are firm mm. principles and, and constructs, frameworks. Now, I'm talking about, when I say science, applied science, engineering yes. science, not yeah. fundamental science. Yeah, of course. But in that context, it's it's really not all that different from engineering a product. Mm. Mm. I want to invent a beautiful pen. Mm. There's engineering that went into this. Yep. But I don't know if you can see so this. For, the, for those of you that are of watching, you will see the pen. For those of you that, that, that are listening, Dean is holding up a silver pen. <laughs> okay. With can... a uh, two-tone, 18-karat gold nib. That's one of my hobbies. So uh, clearly, there's engineering here. Mm. There's metallurgy. There's physical design. Uh, there's the flow of ink. All of that mm. is engineering with firm principles firm constructs, but at the same time, there's aesthetics. So when people say it's an art, I'll agree so long as you don't dismiss that it is also a science. A science. It's not okay. purely go based on gut and no. use your intuition and do as you feel. That's not the case. No, no, clearly. So there are two parts to it. And the art can be the leverage that it gives for systemic change on the more human level, as we just discussed. For Okay. Can you give me an example of some of the firm principles that you see in this sort of engineering science structure? Mm -hmm. we've, we've talked about one, of course, yeah. and that's the principle of empowerment. That's my favorite one, <laughs> the golden rule. <laughs> it's it's yeah. essential. It's absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about another that is design jobs around lines of business rather than uh, the old bureaucratic roles, responsibilities, and racy diagrams and tasks and such. Let me give you another one and that is specific to the world of to the engineering of structure. Yeah. And more specific than that to the engineering of organization charts. Remember, structure has two pieces. Mm. The organization chart provides all of the capabilities the organization needs. Mm. And then the cross-boundary teamwork process cuts across that to assemble yep. those teams, the prime and all the subs. Mm. And you can't change one without changing the other, right? Mm. They are 
So when I say structure, I mean both. Yeah. And I think an incompetent practitioner of structure will treat both concomitantly. So let's talk about a principle of structure as an example of the engineering science. Okay. Why do you think organizations exist at all? Why would these 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people perform any better than an equal number of individuals? Well, the reason we form organizations is to permit people to specialize. If we were 1,000 individuals all trying to serve those customers, we'd all have to be generalists. Yep. And generalists cannot perform as well as specialists. Specialists are better because they've done it before. They produce higher quality. They produce more accurate estimates. They produce things more quickly because they've mm. done it before. They keep up with the literature mm. better because they're well-focused on their profession. Specialists always outperform generalists. And if you have any doubt, if, God forbid, a loved one needs heart surgery, mm. do you go to your family practitioner for that? <laughs> no. no. You go to a cardiologist mm. or even more special, a cardiac surgeon. Yeah. Because specialists outperform generalists. So the purpose of organizations is to allow people to specialize. But of course, you can't specialize if you can't team. Mm. And that's why those two things go together. So the principle would say, maximize specialization to the extent that you are capable of teaming cross-boundary. Okay. And and what happens to the... So we hear a lot today around T profiles and people who can do a bit of both. Yes, Where well... <laughs> Very Tell me important. about that. Tell me about yeah, that's that. exactly what I mean by a specialist. See, okay. uh, the place this comes from is the human mind only has so many brain cycles. You can only read mm. so much and only know so much. In cybernetics, this is termed variety, complexity times yep. pace over time. I think of it as bandwidth or throughput. Mm. And we're all very finite in our variety processing. But meanwhile, the world we live in has unthinkable variety. That word is carefully chosen. No mm. one person can think about all that. No. Unfortunately, um, so not. <laughs> that is why. So you can use your precious brain cycles to know mm. a little bit about everything. The jack of all trades and master, master of none. <laughs> yeah. Or you can know absolutely everything about one subject and nothing about anything else. The fanatic that nobody can talk to, mm. which wouldn't be good for teamwork. Mm. The T-shaped person is one who knows a little bit about everything so as to be able to team, but brings real depth to one field of study. And when you combine a bunch of T-shaped people onto a team, the organization has both breadth and depth. Mm -hmm. so that is essential yes. now that doesn't mean that a t-shaped person goes dabbling in your bottom of the t mm -hmm. no no their business is producing their bottom of the t but they're aware of what's around them and so that we can collaborate on teams yeah and they can they can bring some collective intelligence to whatever you're doing can't they yeah there's some common language mm -hmm. some common um, perspectives and, and paradigms mm -hmm. and what we need more of these days is common truth yes Agreed. Which brings me to implementation, you know, common truth, collective wisdom. Let's talk a little bit about implementation. I'm a big believer, as you know, we've already discussed uh, before the show around collective wisdom and building powerful mm. communities. And, you know, you dedicate a whole chapter in your book to the power of participation and, mm -hmm. you know, involving people in what's going on um, for successful, high performing organizations. Can you walk us through? Mm -hmm. that process and your thoughts around the power of participation. Mm -hmm. Critically important. Mm. As you well know, Susie, we're not just here to change some boxes on an org chart. No. <laughs> what mm. we're talking about, and people use the word transformation much too flippantly. To me, it has real meaning. We're talking mm. not just about adjusting some boundaries and changing some boxes. We're talking about a change in paradigm, a worldview, a change in what the way people think and act. Mm. 
And so that to drive a transformation, you've got to capture hearts and minds. Really? Capture hearts and minds. <laughs> mm. So it's not just about collective wisdom. Yeah, a lot of people have a lot to say that will help with this design process, but it's also about capturing hearts and minds and mm. teaching people to think and behave like entrepreneurs instead of bureaucrats, to think Wait. about what you sell, not what you do. And mm. it's, this is a pay me now, pay me later situation. Mm. If you do it top down, you're going to spend years trying to get it to work right and yep. trying to capture hearts and minds and get people to think differently. Mm. But when you engage people in the process, then we're not only capturing their collective wisdom, but they're experiencing why we're doing this and they're mm. understanding the principles so that by the time you're ready for go live, you hit the ground running with mm. a, not just a new org chart, let's say, but a new team of people who think and act in different ways. Mm. Participation is absolutely essential. It is. And it's the sort of the oil, isn't it, to the organizational operational model? Because bureaucracy to entrepreneurship, with all its paradigms and ways of working, quite a big gap, isn't it? So in practical terms, how would you go about creating this radically different organizational model? So remember, transformation involves all five systems, not just yep. structure. Yep. And remember, structure includes both work chart and teamwork. So with, with that in mind, I think a transformational leader faces three possible situations. It could be that you're in an organization that has a very small tolerance for change right now. And of course, mm. it's your job to build climate for change. And mm. there are things we do to, to accomplish that. But if all the organization can absorb right now is small changes, then the right answer is cautious evolution. Mm. Now, this is the lowest risk for a leader, but it's also the lowest reward. You don't get as much done. You won't be mm. known as visionary. You'll just be fixing problems. The second, a little more ambitious, is to pick one system, be it structure or resource governance processes or culture. Those are the big three. And just focus on that one system for now and get a win there and then come back and say, okay, now let's consider the next system. Mm. The third and most ambitious and the most powerful and the most visionary is a comprehensive transformation. This takes three to five years, but it includes all five systems. Mm. So the first thing to think about is your climate for change, cautious evolution versus let's tackle just one system where there's perceived need versus let's really drive a vision and a transformation on all five systems. Mm. And if a leader chooses consciously uh, cautious mm -hmm. evolution how can your vision and principles help there for implementation well the key is a bunch a series of small changes we don't want to zigzag right yeah you want each small change to eventually add up to a consistent end state yeah so at least if the leader who is designing these small changes or the team of leaders designing these small changes has in mind at least a, a direction like this mm. market organization, then each small change can incorporate some of the principles and be in roughly the right direction so that you don't have to go back and undo what you just did. Yeah. Yeah. So small be, is beautiful, but it has to build on each other. Yeah. 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 Okay. Reminds you a little bit of a Lego factory, but you know, you have to have a model that you want to get to to, you know, to build with the Lego. Yeah. Okay, so how would you go about a restructuring then as opposed to a cautious evolution? Okay, so the next step, the middle yeah. one, is we pick one system, yeah. like structure, mm. and go after that and then see where we go from there. So in the structure process, like in any of these processes, we have to begin by engaging the leadership team and building climate for change before mm. we do anything, right? 
So the first step is we put together the leadership team and we do what I call the rainbow analysis. I have a Tell framework of all the, yeah, it's really colorful and fun. Here's a, here's a framework of all of the lines of business that exist in any organization, be it a whole mm-hmm. company or an IT department or a nonprofit or anything else. Uh, framework of lines of business. Mm. So how about we color code your current organization chart based on what people are actually doing? <laughs> and what's going what you're going to see is, oh, well, I'm doing some of this line of business and some of that mm. line of business and some of this as well. It's going to be very colorful in most cases. That's why I call it the rainbow. <laughs> is it a fragmented rainbow <laughs> or, or it should be lined? Is that? Also part of the analogy? It's a colorful chart. Yeah, okay. Well, what does that mean? A rainbow means a given group is pursuing multiple lines of business. Okay. Boss, I can't be good at all those things at once. Mm. I can't Mm. get the bottom of the T down when I'm also Mm. working in this line of business and that. Mm. It produces specialization and it potentially creates conflicts of interest. Like, so you want me to be both engineering and operations? You want me to... In operations, keep things stable, reliable, safe, mm. and inexpensive. Oh, and you also want me inventing the whole next generation of product? Hello, conflict of interest <laughs> there. What's going to happen? Firefighting swamps innovation, mm. short-term swamps long-term. That's an organization will be very good at running today's infrastructure and delivering today's products and not very inventive or innovative about the future. So um, we color code and we look at the rainbows and what a mess that is. We look at mm. how a color is scattered all over the place. So whose job is it to be sure this profession, this line of business comes together, no gaps, no overlaps? Oh, gee, I guess that goes all the way up to the CEO. Mm. That's not going to work. Mm. And what about collaboration within the profession? That's scattered campus. We look mm. for gaps. Here's a line of business that's totally missing. Mm. So that's a, a process that will, it'll be an unreliable process and it won't occur. You know, catch as catch can mm. when leaders think of it, and it won't be done with world-class excellence. And we look at the substructure. Here's a profession that's supposed to be good at this, but is substructured by that. Mm. Here's a sales force, force that's supposed to be good at knowing clients and their personalities, their people, their politics, their strategies, but it's substructured by product. So you're telling them specialize in product instead of people, instead of clients. So through the rainbow exercise, you can diagnose what a mess you got and whether there is really need for a clean sheet of paper restructuring. That really opens up all those participants' minds to yeah. the need for change. So that's that's the mm. first step. Mm. And you're basically, and you're also visualizing for everyone, aren't you? What's going on, what is happening, what isn't happening, yeah. and how coherent mm. it is with the structure of the ecosystem that you've built. So when would a clean sheet restructuring be warranted when would you Mm. use clean street clean sheet restructuring well if the rainbow analysis reveals just a few little glitches here and there Mm. then you could do a few little tweaks Mm. Um, now two points unwinding a rainbow separating out a rainbow Mm. organization group is going to require new levels of teamwork yeah. They were put together for a reason. They would put, we need all of these different competencies to produce this result. So let's put them all under the same boss. That's a silo organization. And to unwind mm. that requires collaboration with peers. Mm. So if you're going to just do a few little tweaks to the org chart, you can't really unwind the rainbows because you're mm. not investing in the cross-boundary teamwork process with a little tweak. Mm. And the other point is too many tweaks are painful. Yes. Uh, this is gross, <laughs> I know, but it's like picking at a scab. <laughs> You're constantly keeping the organization destabilized. What, mm. When's the next shoe going to drop? What's going to happen to me next? 
So if you need a lot of tweaks, or if the tweak, if it's beyond just tweaks and boundaries, just clarifying boundaries, if it's actually unwinding the rainbows and clarifying lines of business, then it's actually easier and less painful to go clean sheet. Mm. Which leads me to my next question of leaders who feel equipped and who have a vision and who want to lead a fully comprehensive transformation. Um, ah, the third level. <laughs> yeah. The third. Yeah. How, how would you advise them to go about that? Well, a really transformational leader, one who really intends to get it all right across mm. all five systems, mm. would begin, and remember, all of this is done with the participation of um, their leadership team. Mm. First step is a vision. And I don't mean some cute little statement, oh, to be a world-class supplier of these products and services, must customers make lots of money. Oh, beyond boring. <laughs> What's that going to do? No, I mean a really clear description of the end state. How will things work mm. five years from now? Which is, so you can see my book title, How Organizations Should Work. Yeah, and well, the should is in capitals for people who haven't seen yes. it. <laughs> yeah, how they should work. Let's write that down. Mm. How do you intend this organization to work? How do, how should it deal with its customers? How should it manage people? How should it manage money? What is the process by which you invent and evolve? What is the process by which you produce stable operations? Mm. How do you, uh, what are your governance processes and so on? Let's write that vision down. And it takes 10 or 20 pages to write down a comprehensive vision. I have some templates to mm. help people get started. but And hopefully the book mm. gives them kind of a, a foundation for this. So typically um, a C-level leader would draft a vision and then bring it to the leadership team and say, okay, ads, changes, deletes. And they would discuss until everybody understood it. Mm. Oh, by the way, consensus. What does it mean? Consensus means everybody understands it well enough to teach it. And it may not have been their first choice, but yep. they're willing to support the will of the team. It doesn't mean mm. unanimity. No. So I call it teach and support. Okay. So we get everybody to the point that we massage the vision with all their input, get it to the point of teaching support, and then we socialize it out to mm. our internal customers and our staff and get their feedback and incorporate that in. Mm. Now, typically, a leader's done a lot of listening, especially if you're new to the job. You've got there, you listen to your customers. One would hope so. <laughs> Most do. You know, the first 90 days, first 100 mm. days, getting to know everybody, doing a lot of listening. So you can fold that listening into the vision and actually include quotes from people about mm. what they want, both your staff, about the mm. place they want to work, and your customers about what they want from you. Mm. First step is vision. Then gaps. Not gaps being um, problems of today, mm. but gaps against the vision. Okay. So gaps Where in the created we? future. Yeah. Okay. Today, I mean, we have these, we have problems A, B, and C, but if you look at the vision, oh, we're nowhere mm. near on D, E, F, and G. Mm. So a much more comprehensive set of gaps than just the fires you're fighting today. Mm -hmm. And then here's another key difference. So one key difference is this is vision-driven, not just the fires of mm. what you're fighting today. Yeah, the other key difference is let's not go addressing those gaps directly. Think of those as symptoms of something broken in the ecosystem, in those five organizational systems. And let's diagnose root cause. Mm. Why would our good people create a gap here? Yeah, intentionally. Yeah. You know, mm. is it internal economy? Is it mm. structure? Is mm. it culture? What's broken here? Drive those gaps to root cause. And now what we want to do is sequence the root causes, not the symptoms. Mm. Sequence the root causes into a transformation roadmap. 
And of course, at each step, we're socializing it to our customers and to our staff. This is all wide open communication every step of the way. Communication, open communication is essential to capturing hearts and minds. Mm. So by the end of this process, you're presenting a plan. Here's a vision, mea culpa, here's the gaps. Here's our root cause analysis and what we need to do over the next three to five years to get it right. Mm. When you take the vision out to, say, your customers, they'll say, oh, wow, yeah, that's more than I ever dreamed of asking of you. Mm. And staff look at it and say, whoa, that would be the kind of place I'd love to work. When you take the gaps out, it's, okay, I can trust you. You're not Mm. ostrich head in the sand. You're not hiding stuff. You're being, in fact, harder on yourself than I would have been. So Mm. it builds trust. And then when you lay out the root cause analysis and the transformation roadmap, whoa, three to five years, that's a long time. And I see that my major concern won't be treated until year two or year three, but I get it. You're Mm. trying to do something big. So you're building patience. Mm. Mm. All of this takes just three or four months, but it's a really powerful foundation. Mm. And then we follow the roadmap and dig in and to whatever the first system you're going to treat is. And of course, look into the engineering science there and put together a, a pragmatic change management plan there. Wow. I was going to say we've galloped, we've sprinted through the process and there's so much more we could talk about, but um, this is only one podcast, so time is running. But I would like to ask you, Dean, if you have final recommendations or call for actions for leaders who are Mm. listening, thinking, okay, so I need to start thinking differently about performance in my organization and about creating a different model. What would your final recommendations be to them? Yeah, I run into a lot of leaders who Say, well, you know, I, I can I can work on my personal supervisory skills. Mm. Some people mm. think leadership equals one's ability to supervise and inspire people, not, not design the whole organization. Mm. I can work on that, or I can do a little tweak here or there. But we're way too busy. We mm. don't have time. Mm. Three to five years and investing the whole leadership team in this process, we wouldn't have time to that. There's a saying in Florida that I enjoy. We're up to our ears and alligators, no time to drain the swamp. (laughs) But, you know, while you're fighting, okay, so it feels, I know this is not ecologically correct, but Mm. uh, it's a metaphor. (laughs) Up to our ears and alligators, no time to drain the swamp. Well, while you're fighting one big alligator, what do you think the rest of the alligators are doing? They're breeding, right? (laughs) Mm. Mm. This is not leadership. This is a losing proposition. It's as if you're on a treadmill and you think running faster is going to help. No, no. It's critical that leaders reserve time for swamp training, for not just working in the system, but working on the system. Hmm. So often I'll ask a leadership team, not the embarrassing question. If if, if we say leadership is working on the system, management is working in the system. Go with me for now on that. I'll ask a team, okay, not the embarrassing question, how much time are you spending on leadership? But how much time at your level should you be spending on leadership versus management, on working Mm. on the system versus in the system? And you'll get bold answers like 20%, 40%, 50%, 80%, depending on level, of course. Mm. Okay, good. You're committed to reserving some time for this? Because I'll tell you, a day or two a week is what it takes to drive a transformation on the part of the whole leadership team. Stepping up to leadership, not just management, a day Mm. or two a week Mm. to work on the system, not just in the system, at which point they all kind of gulp and say, yeah, I guess we did commit to that. Okay. So what's interesting is that starts Mm. forcing more empowerment, more delegation, Mm. 
more understanding of the big rocks versus the little rocks of what's really worth doing and wash yeah. the rest away. But my advice is to challenge yourself and your leadership team to step up to leadership, not just management, to um, working on the system, not just in the system, to draining that swamp and focus on the real end game. To me, a really great leader is one who leaves the legacy of an organization that performs brilliantly. Supplier of choice to its customers, employer of choice to its employees, contractors and vendors. Leaving the legacy of an organization that performs brilliantly long after she's moved on. Okay, thank you. I'm going to leadership. I'm going to leave our listeners with that idea of creating, building, and leaving a legacy, and also leadership, not management. Mm. Dean, thank you so much for coming and sharing your research, your experience, and your thoughts with us on this subject. Where can people find out more about you, your book, and what you do? Well, I hope uh, I hope any serious student of organization design, whether that's a practitioner or an executive, uh, would find a few hours to read my book, How Organizations Should Work. If you do, I'd really like to meet you and talk to you about your unique challenges and see if we can sort out a path forward. There's also a whole library on my work at ndma.com. That stands for the not very clever name, Nathan Dean Meyer and Associates. <laughs> ndma.com, November, December, March, April.com. And uh, it's really not intended as a brochure like most websites. It's it's a real resource library on, on transformation and organization design. So the book and the website, and then I hope to hear from you and we'll chat. Okay, super. Thank you very much. And I will put the link to the website that Dean has just mentioned in the show notes of the podcast so you'll be able to find it. Thank you for that, Susie. Thank you, Dean. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, please head over to iTunes and give us your feedback and your review. And it's bye from me for now. And I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. <laughs>